0: You're listening to 89.5 FM KOPN Columbia, Mid Missouri's source for in depth news, diverse talk, and music of the world. It's not just radio, it's community radio, on the web at kopn.org. And this is Speaking of the Arts. Speaking of the Arts on KOPN, an hour of news, views and interviews on the arts in Mid-Missouri. I'm Diana Moxon. We are less than one week out from the annual documentary film extravaganza, That Is True False. And if, like me, you love spending a weekend vicariously diving into other people's lives and having epiphanies of both joy and outrage, then you are likely counting the hours until the fest kicks off next Thursday. In the second part of today's show, I am joined by three of my gal pals who are as excited as I am about spending next weekend in documentary land. I have art team volunteer Esther Stroh, former True False film reviewer Becky Gibbs, and one of Columbia's most well-known arts lovers around town, Anne Mayer. But before we immerse ourselves in the world of film, I am delighted to welcome back to the studio one of my favourite guests, Winona Wiley from the Stevens College Theatre Department, along with actors Cameron Pilly and Fiona Blue. To talk about their production of the Sophie Treadwell classic play Marchinal, which is on this weekend. And I know that you can pronounce it machinal or marchinal, but apparently Sophie Treadwell preferred Marchinal. So I've gone I've gone with that option.
1: <laughs> oh, okay, we, we typically go for machinal, but okay, that's, <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah, challenge us.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I read there was many, many different ways of pronouncing it, but that Sophie Treadwell um, had apparently said that she preferred Marchinal. So there we go, Marshall. Welcome to the show, Winona, Cameron, and Fiona. Hello. Hi. Hello. (laughs) Now, as often happens, I know nothing about a particular play until one of the theatre groups in town presents it. And then I realise how poor my general knowledge is about theatre when it turns out that, in fact, it is a seminal play. And machinal by Sophie Sophie Treadwell is exactly that. When the play opened on Broadway in 1928, it got rave reviews. The New York Times wrote that it was a triumph of individual distinction, gleaming with intangible beauty, Mm -hmm. and was lauded as a play that, in a 100 years, should still be vital and vivid which sadly it is Mm -hmm. yet it closed after just 91 performances and then pretty much vanished from view it's described as a hard play to love but what makes you love it?
2: Oh, God,
1: so many things. I think uh, the reason I love it is kind of uh, what you touched on. It, it definitely transcends time. It's it's from, you know, the 1920s, but here we are in 2019. Oh, my God, it's almost 2020, you know? It, it has almost been 100 years. And the story is still so relevant and so real, you know, despite the fact that it's it's not realism and it's not, like, a genre that people easily connect to. You watch the story and you, like, feel for the woman, you know what I mean? You are with her 100% of the time. Um, and it's just, I mean, that's... That's what you you come and see a play for to you to feel things and right. uh, you very much get that from this piece.
0: Cameron there's uh, a lot to unpack with this play but let's start start by talking about the genre of drama that it is very much part of which is expressionist theatre. What are the origins of expressionist theatre and what are some of the hallmarks of, of that style of theatre?
3: Um, well expressionism in general as an art movement started in Germany after World War one after the German people felt like their promises of glorious war were diminished and they saw horrors that they had never seen before. And so they started to think that for the first time really that their government was not behind them and they were just being pawns. And so from this, it became very dark expressionism came forth after realism was established as being really, really awesome, really, really great. But they were like, you know what? We want to do a style of theater where it's not how real it is, it's how it makes you feel. That's how you can value expressionism.
0: Right. So kind of how the story is told is more important than kind of what is being told to some extent. And, and it's about the dehumanization of the industrial age. So I think people may be familiar with the film Metropolis, which is a, a yeah. prime example of uh, expressionist theater and drama.
1: It's funny that you brought that up because um, the director of this play, Shane Hensley, actually was super inspired by that movie and her concept for this
0: piece. So, yeah. <laughs> now, but you're doing it in a black box theater. So, I mean, you aren't, you don't have a huge amount of scenery or backdrop to play with, right? In a black box theater, you've got a minimalist set design.
1: Our um, our set designer, uh, Jess Lorenz, actually did a phenomenal job with, um, you know, making the set design still, like, really compelling, because obviously, um, from your research in the show, I'm sure you know that there are many different settings here, right. so you do have to use very minimalistic pieces, but um, the lighting designer and the scenic designer were kind of able to create this uh, beautiful, like, you know, skyline and backdrop um, that really helps uh, encompass, like, the mood of the story and brings you in. Right. Yeah. I've been inspired by Metropolis, well, that. <laughs> That's Great. Yeah. So, tell us a
0: little bit about the play. The, it's the plot of the play. is a, a story of a woman who murders her husband, um, and that's the plot. And then the plan of the play is to tell this story, showing different phases of this woman's life, in none of which she finds any peace or any place for herself. So, let's start with the plot. Cameron, you are the young. You play the young woman in the play. So, flesh out the plot for us. What is the kind of the overarching
3: arc of the story? Well. Sophie Treadwell wanted to write the story where this could happen to any woman, and because it's based off of uh, Ruth Snyder's murder trial, where she was executed by electric chair. For killing her husband. For killing her husband. (laughs) She began to think, well, what could drive an ordinary person that isn't a monster to do this? And so we start off the show uh, in the office, uh, where she works for her soon-to-be husband, He's just proposed marriage to her and she is grappling with this idea of can I marry this guy that I really hate or should I just continue working in this office for the rest of my life, bringing in money for my mom who can't work anymore, who doesn't have a, any skill. You know, this is the 1920s, she can't get a job better than a stenographer. And so then it it jumps in through time to when they're in their honeymoon together. And after they've been married for a while, after they've had a baby, it jumps into very specific slots in her, in her life that really are all aha moments.
0: Now, we should say that the play is very loosely based on the Ruth Snyder murder Mm -hmm. trial. So Ruth Snyder murdered uh, her husband uh, with her lover in, I think, probably 1926 or 27. And she Mm -hmm. was the first woman, I believe, to go to the electric chair in New York State. And that was in 1927. And this play came out in 1928. Mm -hmm. And so it was really the trial of the century described at the time. Celebrities packed the courtroom. It was just fascinating to the media, uh, this, this murder, because it wasn't a very... Wasn't a very clever murder. So they were very easily caught, and this inspired the play. But I I think it pretty quickly diverges from the actual facts of the murder trial. And this is really Sophie Treadwell. She's simply taking the murder by other husband, by the wife, uh, as the kind of the basis for the story, and then the circumstances of the young woman's life are quite different than um, Ruth Snyder's. So the main character is referred to just as the young woman for most of the play, the only time her name is referenced, she's called Miss A in the Mm -hmm. um, the first kind of vignette or episode, and then later on in the play we'd find out that her name is Helen when we have her trial. Why does she not have a name?
3: Um, I think it does come back to Sophie Treadwell wanting to, to keep this a story that any woman can relate to. And I think maybe just in modern uh, vernacular, we don't go around, oh, hi, Miss Bababa. Hello, Miss Bababa. So I feel like the only times her, name, her names are actually mentioned is when she's being introduced to someone and in the court
0: right I guess looking at the script every time your lines come up it just says the young woman mm-hmm, you know mm-hmm. she's never defined by her name it's just always the the young woman Fiona talk a little bit about the nine episodes that we see she doesn't call them scenes she calls them episodes which are a little bit like nine different prison settings as the woman the young woman is always struggling against other people or situations what are those nine phases of life that we go through with her
2: well, I think that it's um, almost expositional. We're, we're setting up her life to relate to basically anyone. Any woman in that time could be experiencing the same kind of um, doldrums of the workplace and then into a home life where maybe things aren't as good from the outside as they are in an internal dynamic with her mother. They argue they fight, and that seems to happen for everyone. So um, each scene is kind of setting up a situation that I feel each woman seeing the show can relate to in a certain sort of way when we get to the scenes that involve my character richard Rowe. who is what what character is that so uh, richard is the lover of the of the show and in my interpretation he is the embodiment of helen's longing to to escape the situations that she's put herself in she chooses to to marry a man for money and is stuck in that marriage and upset with where she is. And Richard offers her this uh, escape. You know, he's, he's a man that travels down to Mexico. He, he escapes, he travels. And so in their meeting and in their intimacy, I think Helen finds solace in that. And not to give too much away, it also represents the futility of pursuing such a relationship when exposed to the types of um, things that society has pressured women into conforming to. It kind of shows this fantasy that Helen has in her mind of being able to escape, being able to to travel, to experience true intimacy, spontaneity, and the ultimate freedom, escape from this machine sort of life that she's been living. But in the end, it, it doesn't work out for her. My character actually submits an affidavit to the court, exposing their sort of relationship, which just puts more weight on Helen's shoulders as she's right. facing her own execution in the end of the show. What
3: does Machinal mean? Let's go back to that for a second. I, I can only speak from my character's perspective, but um, I think Machinal, or Machinal. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Sophie so tried rolls rolling in her grave whenever I say Machinal. <laughs> um, I think it means to my character, because I've made this decision with the director, that she does believe that every person besides her is a machine. Some people more than others, but I, I think it goes back to, for my character specifically and for the whole overarching play, where we fit into this machine-like society that we live in, and are we a cog, are we conducting this machine ourselves, or, or are we just going along with it, are we just on like the tread?
0: It's just kind of this automatic life that subsumes her, and she doesn't really have a way to stand against it. I mean, I do think it's interesting that Sophie Treadwell herself, as a playwright, was, was pretty successful. She was a journalist, she was a foreign correspondent. She was the only foreign journalist to be granted an interview with Pancho Villa during the Mexican Revolution mm-hmm. by the New York Herald. She reported from Europe on the First World War, she marched for the mm-hmm. suffragettes, she produced and directed her own work, she was a novelist, she wrote over 30 plays. Seven of which <laughs> appeared on Broadway. So she was a very successful woman of her time, and this was the time. You know, this was uh, just after nineteen nineteen. Women had just got the vote, and yet she paints this portrait of very trapped. Uh, this a very trapped woman, um, but that wasn't that wasn't her life at all. So there, there seems like there were opportunities for some people, but she chose to write about somebody who wasn't able to escape.
1: Yeah, I think she was. Um yeah writing for for someone you know who wasn't her for someone who who didn't have the opportunities that she had to help tell the world about like situations like this i i, right.
0: I guess you know she's we're saying how it's still she wanted it to be still you know vivid Right. Well, people said it'd be still vivid in a hundred years, and we're saying, well, yes, it is still vivid in a hundred years. You know, women are still subjected uh, to situations that they f- don't feel they're in control of. But so many women have been in control over mm-hmm. the years, and so this is painting a particular oh, picture. Oh, sure, of one yeah. Um, um, so I've
2: been thinking about this and kind of viewing this show as, you know, we're women are not oppressed as much as they were back in the time when the play was written. Today, we have so many more. Opportunities, so many more liberties as women. But I still think that there is a message to be explored within this show, and that is self-suppression. Because when women are subjected to these preconceived notions they have of how they should act in society, they have the opportunity to choose to follow the norms or not. Mm -hmm. And Um, For me, I've been examining my life and the roles that I play on a more individualized basis And I've been trying to decide if if I adhere to the things that I'm subscribing myself to and I think that's a really Interesting thing that people can take away from the show when they view it is to kind of think about the, the life choices that they're making in the moment and whether that aligns with their own values right Mm -hmm. Winona do you have something to add um yeah totally not off that I just remembered the other thing I was
1: gonna say um which was just uh that despite the fact that the young woman is definitely trapped in this story I wouldn't describe her as weak at all but in response to, to what Fiona just said, I definitely feel like that's also a good description of Sophie Treadwell in her time. Yeah, and
0: she, I think she had said that uh, she hoped that the expressionist style this kind of inner monologues along with that moment of intimacy would create a suggestive atmosphere and encourage the audience to com- kind of complete their own narrative mm-hmm. and to illuminate, she said, still secret places in the consciousness of the audience, especially of women, yeah. so that we should go away and think about this and think, how much do I follow the norms and how much do I fight against those so I think that is yeah very true that that's that's what she wanted and that's what you're doing so yeah great she's stopped turning in her grave now For the actor, you who's playing Helen, there are a lot of long and disassociative monologues. Yes. In which she pretty much nonsensically regurgitates common terms of phrase, repeating them time and again in a way that, you know, you feel there's kind of a poignancy and a sadness to her words. And it allows you to be inside her head as you're watching the scene and the events unfold. How on earth did you tackle learning? The lines for that
3: role well uh, (laughs) (laughs) I I am actually not a very good memorizer in general (laughs) Um, so I mostly just rely on on dialogue normally in a normal scene I will make like flashcards and things like that but for for this I split the monologue into sections and I made it a dialogue between myself where on one side of the flashcard I had one section, the other side I had the next section. Mm -hmm. So it was like, it was a main idea, which was like three, four sentences, then the next main idea. It's easier to follow along with the ideas that she's thinking than to just go by word, because she'll say stairs, long golden stairs, golden stairs, long stairs, long, too long, long, too tired, long. It's, It's very, very difficult to try and get it word for word, but once you realize where it's going, you do have to think ahead. Once you realize where it's going, it's easier to just give into it. Um so after a while I don't have to think about it at all really. I can just think about the feelings and the words just come out. You opened last night, is that right? Yes. yes. How did it go? <clears throat> it went really, really well. I had a great time. <laughs> I-, I was on stage the whole time so I couldn't get to watch it at all. <laughs> <laughs> do you record them
0: so
1: you can look back afterwards no no it's actually uh, well actually this is public domain so I guess we could but oh. I mean, I'm not suggesting anything we we don't we typically don't because you know a typical play you have to buy the raids for and then that would be illegal but this is in public domain so, oh okay but... So
0: uh, Fiona, you play so you say play Helen's lover. Yeah. We meet him about halfway through the play. Yeah. So we've had episodes, we've had the opening episode where she's in an office and you see how unhappy she is in her work situation. There's a scene with her mother where you feel how how she is dominated by her mother and her mother has certain expectations um, and that she doesn't really like and she asks like, you know, what is love? Is it supposed to feel this way? I'm kind of disgusted by this man and her mother says, love it's not going to pay the bills. Mm-hmm. Um, and So she, she suffers there and then I think we have the marriage scene yeah, or she gets married scene, to the honeymoon yes. scene where she's kind of disgusted by him. Yeah, we have an awful child. scene which is she's, she's a child mm-hmm. where again she's in the hospital, she doesn't want to touch the child mm-hmm. she doesn't, the husband comes mm-hmm. in Very and she she starts it. gagging when she sees the husband, yeah. um, and then you know in the second half we 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 have this scene where we meet this we meet the lover, speakeasy,
2: late forties, New York City, yeah.
0: <laughs> and that part was played by a very very young Clark Gable when it first opened on Broadway. So uh-huh. you're uh, following in, in big footsteps. Yeah. Um, so um, we meet you. Who else? Who else do we? I guess those are the main characters. We have lots of background characters. So there's a multitude of voices, some of which are off stage, yeah. kind of setting this feeling. Do you have those voices? Do you see those people that are, are, are making kind of the background sounds, the background voices, or do you have them on the stage? How have you staged it?
1: It, it pe- um, depends on the scene. There is an ensemble of characters who play, like various different roles throughout the show. Um, certain scenes um, have uh, lots of people on stage. Like, I mean, the speakeasy. Scene has quite a few people on stage, mm-hmm. um, so, you know, convey those stories and um, hear those. Some of the scenes you have hear people talking off stage, but in the scenes where you don't hear talking off stage, the soundscape is very, very important to the right. to the play. And I'm sure you've also read about that too. Mm-hmm. Um, the music is just uh, it, it was a very important piece to this uh, the expressionism of this. So there's always a, a background score, and if there's nothing going on in the background, that is also very intentional. Um, so it's definitely a play that you can get a lot from from just listening. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Right.
4: Mm-hmm. And
0: so, and so when we meet the lover,
1: and we pretty much, the lover, there's one scene where she's with the lover, and it's
0: just this wonderful moment for her. Yeah. She realizes that this is kind of freedom, but then he leaves her.
2: He why, does.
0: why does he, why do you think he, he leaves? Does,
2: um, he does. He he doesn't commit, you know, he doesn't commit to a place or a woman or he, he goes off on a little rant about how he gets off the boat the other day and he sees all of the women. They all look so lovely. You know, he's just kind of airy. He's, he's going between this place and that place and, and doesn't really have any sense of commitment. Um, for me, playing this character, was it, it's, it's really fun for me because I've never been able to to play a man before. Um, I've always been cast as an ingenue. Um, so I, I love um, embodying physically what it means to be a man. And also, this is my first warehouse show that I've been on, on stage with. So it, it's just a very new, wonderful experience for me. And I love working with everyone. It's such a collaborative, creative environment at the warehouse. And... Now
0: all of the men have been cast as women. Yes. What was the intention behind that?
1: Yeah. So when we first um, were doing our season selection, actually last year, we all uh, we actually read All in our theater history course. So we were all very much like pushing it, like, "Oh, this is a perfect show for the warehouse to do." Um, and then we we had to like talk and we said, "Could we do this show with all women?" Because it, it's hard for us to get men. Obviously, we're not women's school. And so we we had to think about like, you know, what would change the meaning if we had women playing uh, these like male roles but just you know dressed in like pants and we found that It definitely could be done, you know? If anything, it's like when you're watching it as an audience member and you realize the story is being completely composed by women, it just adds another layer of um, what the story is telling, especially about, you know, like, women in the period. And our fabulous costume designer, Madison Williams, did these men so well. Let me tell you, they walk on stage, and I mean, like, you'll figure out that they're women, but, like, they don't look it. She did great. The costumes (laughs) are fantastic. I
0: can't imagine Fiona not looking like a woman, so that must be pretty impressive. Yeah, Oh, and let me tell you, she looks like a heartthrob. If you watch yeah. the show, you're going to fall in love with her. It's Swab. crazy. Swab. <laughs> so how was it playing a man talk about that what did do you feel like you got a different insight into the male psyche by playing a man <laughs> um, maybe
2: maybe of a certain type <laughs> um it's it's very it's i love playing with physicality and i love playing with different placement in, in my body how i carry myself what propels me forward it's very interesting to to um, kind of lead your body with your hips rather than anything else and i i feel like i kind of manspread in just normal situations <laughs> no <Winona?
3: laughs> That man's um, writing right now. <laughs>
2: but I I just, I, I love getting into the character of it. I love putting a little New Yorker in it. You know, um, it, it's just, it's it's fun. It's liberating. It's a new type of role for me. Um, and I think also for the other women that are playing men as well, my good friend Shawnee, um, she's uh, kind of my, my counterpart, my male friend in the show. And I think for us, it's been really fun getting into the mode of of how a man would physically carry himself. <laughs> did he
0: did he feel does he feel contemporary uh, when you when you're doing the lines, do you think that the, would you change anything? Does he feel like he's from the twenty first century or does he feel like he's sold a lot in the nineteen twenties?
2: I feel like I feel like Richard Rowe is a timeless character I feel like he could exist in any place and time and many. still be the same way many of him
3: exist <laughs>
1: I, de- I definitely hear some of your lines and I'm like oh yeah I've heard that from a man before <laughs>
3: yeah. one of the husband's lines is quote I understand women <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah he's not a very sympathetic character
3: <laughs> well I, I find him very sympathetic because he's kind of just bumbling around he's not very ill-willed really yeah, I, I was. Gonna, he, I can't speak for Natalie's interpretation, Natalie Botkins, but I think the audience is actually really liking him because oh, they've started to like giggle yeah. a little bit when yeah. he's on because he's just oblivious. Yes, oblivious. Right. He's, a yeah, he's
1: not him. a bad guy. You right. know, he's not an evil
0: guy. He's yeah. just no. He's not the one that gets someone. Who that gets does it, the murder. Yeah. He's yeah. the one that you know gets the murder. Exactly. Yeah. Yikes. So, uh, talking of sympathy, do you think that the audience has sympathy for the young woman for Helen Jones? I mean, she does commit murder, and, you know, it's kind of hard to have sympathy for a murderer. And, you know, she doesn't really have to do it. I mean, as we've discussed, I mean, she made certain choices in her life, even though she felt that she was compelled to do so. Mm-hmm. Do you feel sympathy for her?
3: I, I feel like uh, any actor who plays Helen will definitely have sympathy for her. I read the script before the auditions. I was like, oh, that's just me. I won't kill anyone. <laughs> I'll preface that by saying, I am, I am not a murderer, I will preface that. But um, I think there's two different interpretations that the audience can take that she's either mentally ill, by which if she's mentally ill, she might just, you, I think you have to have sympathy for her then, because if she doesn't understand what's happening, she doesn't understand what's happening. And then the other interpretation is that she genuinely thinks everyone around her is a machine and if that is true, which it's portrayed through her consciousness so everyone is like walking on a grid and very machine like when they do their lines. Some people weigh more than others. I don't think you, Fiona are too machine like compared to other characters. Mm -hmm. In that situation I feel like people would also have sympathy for her then because I I think I would go crazy if I was living in in a time or in any situation fantasy or not where everyone around me is a machine. I know that that is uh, a mental illness that some people have where they think everyone around them isn't really a human, or like there's um, another one where people think that they're always being recorded, like the Truman Show. <laughs> right, or The Matrix. <laughs> yeah, or The Matrix, people mm-hmm. who genuinely think that. Um, and <clears throat> that's what I brought up to Cheyenne. I was like, I think that's what she had. I think she genuinely right. thinks everyone around her is a machine. And in that situation, I, I still would hope that they would have sympathy for her.
0: Well, she had a nervous breakdown, Yeah, I suppose, too. Um, we are out of time, but uh, you can get tickets from stevens.edu slash box hyphen office. Or you can give the box office a call on 573-876-7199. The box office is open from 1 till 3, Monday to Friday. Or you may be able to just turn up uh, but on the night. But it is only on this weekend you've had opening night last night you have a chance to see it tonight tomorrow at 7.30 plus a 2pm matinee on Sunday it's a really fascinating play it's really part of the arc of American theatre of the 20th century it's an important play to go and see so I do hope everybody will have a chance thank you so much to Winona Wiley Cameron Pilly and Fiona Blue the Sophie Treadwell classic play Machinal is on at Steams College Warehouse Theatre this weekend only thank you ladies thank, thank you, you. You're listening to Speaking of the Arts on 89.5 FM, KOP and Columbia. And after the break, I'll be back with my pals, Esther Stroh, Becky Gibbs and Anne Mayer to talk about next weekend's True False Film Festival. Stay close to your radio.
5: All right, let's get back now to Speaking of the Arts.
0: Welcome back to Speaking of the Arts and to a segment I'm calling Two Cents on True-False. Joining me in the studio are art team and booze crew juggernaut volunteer, Esther Stroh, former True-False film reviewer, Becky Gibbs, and because it wouldn't be a review party without her, former KOPN programmer, teacher to countless generations of young artists and arts attendee without compare, Dr. Anne Mayer. Ladies, welcome to our own private Film Fest preview party.
4: I feel like we need <laughs> drinks and snacks. <laughs> we should <have> gotten
0: <laughs> no drinks in the studio, I'm afraid. Oh, okay. You know the rules. I know. Now, the first True False Film Fest was in 2004, and Esther and Anne, you have both not only attended every festival, but in Esther's case, you have also volunteered at every festival, so you are true devotees. And thinking back to that first year, did you think it would become such a world-famous festival, Anne? Well,
4: there was a January snow day, and we were, we were ragtag fans. But I heard about the documentary film fest, and to tell you the truth, I was not excited. I thought, you know, I spend my life teaching. I don't need anything didactic in my movie land. And then I got online during the snow day and started reading the descriptions of these movies. And I ended up buying a pass, and I ended up loving it more than I ever imagined. So every year we've just become more involved and more excited. And I don't know, Esther, I don't know how you can volunteer and see everything. That's amazing to me. So thank you for volunteering, because really it's the volunteers that make it all happen. It is. So.
0: It is. And, and I don't volunteer for that festival because I just want to dedicate myself to I, it, enjoying so it. So I
4: just want to go. Thank
0: you to all volunteers and especially to Esther, who's here with us today. So thank did you think at the
6: beginning it was going to be this big? Right. So my recollection of the first year of the festival was that there were a couple of guys in town, um, Paul Sturtz, who was within my circle of friends, and his friend, David Wilson, were going to put together this film festival. And they started calling around everybody they knew <laughs> to help them pull it off. And they were calling around, they were looking for somebody with a sewing machine because they needed someone to sew some curtains for the blue note to block the sound from the entryway to the place where the films were going to be. So my first job for the festival was sewing these curtains, which ended up hanging there in every festival for many, many years. Have they been retired now? (laughs) Right, yes. I can't recall how long they were there, but they've been there for quite a few years. And another job I had during that festival was getting... for for some part of the day, getting Paul to wherever it was he needed to be before a screening. And it was a little surreal that this was actually happening. They didn't know that they were really going to pull it off. And they had given away a lot of tickets to people just to get some butts in the seats because they weren't
4: sure who was going to show up. And everybody showed up. Everybody showed up. In fact, when I got my pass, I did not bother to reserve tickets for the larger venues. Opening night was touching the void, as you so astutely noted. We almost didn't get in. I was like, oh, I bought a pass. This is a big venue. We had to wait, and almost we just squeaked in. We were like the last two people they let in. So, yeah, from the get go, it's been more than enough.
0: Now, that first year, there was the the, the little tiny old ragtag cinema, and there was the Blue Note, and also the Missouri Theater. In Missouri Just Theater. those three venues. That was it. Was there more going back to those days? Oh, uh,
4: we've got we've got it in the backpack over here. But <laughs> we'll check it. Never at, mind. We'll check it at the commercial.
0: And um, Becky, how long have you been going? Seven or eight years, something I, like that. Thinking,
5: I was trying to go back and look. I think seven or eight would be. In the ballpark?
0: I think my first one was 2008. That was year five. And I was thinking, you know, I was kind of late to the party. But then I realized I actually didn't live in America for the first three years. And then in year four, I just started working at the Art League. So I was a little preoccupied. So actually, I think I got there as fast as I could. So this year, there are 44 documentary films being screened, all of which explore the human condition, some uplifting, some enraging, some merely perplexing. It's a four-day journey where you not only have to manage your snacks, but also the height of the emotional roller coaster that you want to go on. If you go full bore, you can manage to see probably around 18 documentaries, though I think the most I ever managed was 16, and I've cut back this year to 14. So let's start by seeing what your top picks are at this year's festival and and what attracted you to them? Why those films? Anne, let's start with you.
4: We're signed up for 18. I just counted. One Child Nation is one that I feel really drawn to right now. I'm so perplexed at the pregnant woman and how she is owned by her government. So I'm really... In fact, this year, for the first time, we're skipping the parade to go see One Child Nation. That's a first because I so love the parade. Because my other involvement in this has been Lee Expressive Arts School, now Locust Street Expressive Arts School, kids participating in decorating venues, participating in the parade, participating in making little swag bags. So uh, this will be the first year that I'm missing it, but I really felt compelled to see that film because it probably won't come out in wide release or come back to ragtag. So I'm looking forward to that.
0: Me too. And in fact, I, I do like to have a little a little soup song of outrage at a couple of films during the festival, and David Wilson told me that is my outrage film. Oh. Going to get my outrage on at One Child Nation. Okay. See you there for that one. Okay. What
4: else? Well, The Commons seems like another outrage film that I think hits close to, close to home. I mean, I think we're still, it took 114 years in Columbia to rename Robert E. Lee's school.
0: And the Commons is about North Carolina, about them taking down a
4: statue right. in North Carolina. Right. right. So that's I think that the Confederacy is something that we need to be, it needs to be outed by literature because how else do we learn?
6: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, that's going to be a strong, a strong film with plenty of outrage. Right. Um anything else what about any any amusing ones Do you have any light lighter moments oh, in your
4: Oh Mr Soul and um I think that Midnight in Paris is going to be great fun. And Midnight
0: in Paris is about a high school in Flint Michigan and they're getting ready for prom. So I think that'll be a beautiful film with lots of fancy f- prom frocks. Right.
4: So I think they I think they'll be happy. I was I was kind of glad to see that there weren't 10 must-see war films this year. Yeah. Because you have to see the must-see ones, but... Not 10. Not 10,
0: yeah. The the emotional hangover is too great on Monday morning if you've really gone for the full emotional journey.
6: Esther, what are you looking forward to? Okay, well, it always amazes me to to see the different films that my friends pick out. So for me... um, I always try to do the uplifting ones. I, there's so many films, and it's just like I have to see uplifting ones. So this year I'm really interested in Apollo 11. Um, I loved seeing um, In the Shadow of the Moon, which was the opening night of 2007. And anything that has to do with the moon or space like uh, or physics or science, like particle fever a few years back, I'm, I'm all about that. Um, I'm also really interested in seeing Tightrope, and it's about a traveling Mexican circus because there have been other ones. There was Circo that we had in 2011, and I swore there was another one, and I looked through the books. America, America. last year. Well, that's what it, yeah. That was not a traveling Mexican circus.
5: Not directly, but the one character
6: was. <laughs> okay, but it was, this, uh, it was tightrope. It was actually here in 2010 as a sneak preview. And I'm like, mm-hmm. I know it. Anyway, so I'm going to see that one. And I'm also interested in Midnight in Paris because I think it will be similar to like Order of Myths, which is one of my favorites of all time, which is about Mardi Gras in Mobile, Alabama. Mm-hmm. And then the other one is Celebration, Yves Saint Laurent uh, story.
0: Right. Yeah. That one did not make it onto my final list, and I think that's going to be one of the ones that I'm going to regret not. You never in. know.
6: You think, you know what you're going to like, but you know, yeah, that's true. Right. That's true. Becky, what's on, what's on your top picks? Well, I always struggle because the, the descriptions only
5: get me so far, you know, so I can give you an idea about whether it's going to be, I'm, I won't be able to tell you after the festival, whether or not these were really the things I wanted to see, but, um, the cold case, uh, Hammerskold. I'm terrible at the pronunciation. You can probably get me Good that. Good um, <laughs> That one, I'm really interested. I love The Ambassador. I know that Brugger was like kind of the bad boy of the documentary-ish world. Um, so that I also, Celebration is one that I had, I'm just, the idea that the film was made, shown once, and then sort of canned because, um, you know people who were represented in the film didn't maybe perhaps like the way they are represented, so it makes me want to see it. That's the East Side Correct. Okay. And Amazing Grace, I just, mm. I just love the... I like a lot of the music films, That it, it turns out. A lot of the, the ones that have you know, music as their background are ones that...
0: And Amazing Grace is about Aretha Franklin, and it's, uh, it's all filmed at a concert that was in recorded a in a church mm-hmm. back in the 1970s. So the whole film is the recording of this concert... I think I'm right in saying. I think that's true. Um, and the other one you mentioned, the cold case Hammershild, is a, a Mads Bruger. Mads Bruger is a Danish director that has been uh, had two films in the festival previously. One called The Red Chapel, where he went to North Korea in a very edge of your seat film where you thought at any minute he is going to get arrested and we're never going to see him again because he was flying so close to the edge in that film in in making fun of the North Koreans. And then he came back a couple of years and he actually came to Colombia for the Ambassador, right. where he went to the Congo to. Research, I think diamond trade, and again he was running up against gangs with big guns, and somehow, and he was posing as an ambassador, which he wasn't. So he lied all the way through the film, and somehow <laughs> made it through. So this uh, cold case, he goes to, um, gosh, is it South Africa or
5: Zimbabwe? Somewhere well, in the southern south, I think was in the Congo. So it's back to that. Oh, same back to area, the Congo. I, I think I'm not sure about
0: yeah. that. Sadar so Kamishoed was the United Nations Secretary General in the early late 1950s, early 1960s, and he was killed in a plane crash whilst he was still the Secretary General. And it was always a little suspect as to how this plane had come down. And so uh, Mads Bruger, our investigative Danish journalist, has gone over to find out the truth behind the plane crash. Um, and in fact, there was something in the news quite recently that a Belgian-British fighter pilot had said uh, yeah i shot him down that was my job i was told to shoot him out of the sky and so i don't know whether that is in conjunction with this film coming out or whether it just happened to be at the same time but anyway that is going to be a good film so that's definitely on my list um what have been some of your past favorites over the years
4: i love the yes Men so much oh my goodness i loved the yes Men. and they came twice and films. they came twice yes yes men fix the world. It- Yeah, just hilarious. And there again, what it's people pulling pranks and documenting themselves. I mean, the range of what documentary does and can do is pretty stunning. And I love it that True False kind of goes the whole way.
6: Mm hmm. Mm -hmm. I've had so many favorites, but believe it or not, in spite of the fact that I see so many films in the weekend, there was one year where I went back to see the same oh. film a <laughs> second time. Oh <laughs> <laughs> what was it? That was 20 Feet from Stardom. Oh. oh. that was, See, the, the music. Yeah, and just, just the story of the backup singers, you know, and, and not being in the spotlight, but all their, their work. It was just fabulous. And so, yeah, I went and I saw that one twice in one year.
0: It was a beautiful movie, and and really well made too. Just a great the way the story rolled out was really well presented. Becky, what have what have you got in your past favorites?
5: I was thinking about as we look at at the uh, opening night shows. Tim's Vermeer was one that mm-hmm. I just you know I think I kind of rate films on how long they stay with me. Like if you ask me certain films, oh you remember this one or that one? I have no recollection, even if I liked it at the time. So mm-hmm. one that sticks with me definitely something like yeah that
0: made it onto my sims list too Vermeer. sims with me was amazing um i always get a little bit of almost like a fomo fear of missing out when i'm previewing the selections like what if i don't choose the one that everyone is talking about maybe there's a sleeper that i've overlooked and there is of course always the option to change your mind and queue up to see a different movie than the one you've chosen but it is kind of a fun guessing game so i wondered if you had any predictions for what you think is going to be the most talked about film this year And have you got it on your list?
5: (laughs) I think We're all (laughs) drawing a blank here. I uh, think Knock
0: Down the House, where the four female standing for Congress, I guess, in different areas, one of which is Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. And I think the film probably focuses quite a lot on her, but there are three other women that run. And I'm not sure whether they all do get into office, but I think that's going to be
4: a big one. My son actually was at Sundance and saw it there and said that... uh, AOC Skyped in afterwards. Oh, Ooh. I hope she Skypes into mm. us too. Oh, yes. Well,
6: I think, so just looking at the little blurbs in the book, and they always say who will be accompanying the film, whether it's a director or one of the subjects. And so for Apollo 11, it says special guest. Mm. And so you never know who that might be. So could it be Buzz Aldrin? You know, we don't know. We don't know. We
0: know it's not going to be Neil
6: Armstrong. Armstrong. (laughs)
0: So, yeah, so that might be a really cool thing. You know, talking about that, when I think back over past festivals, it isn't always the films themselves that stand out, but it is that moment when you've spent 90 minutes immersed in someone's life and then they walk out onto the stage. And I Get teary every time that that happens. Even if it's been a happy story, I'm so overwhelmed that that person who is now so famous to me, who I feel so close to, is standing there on the stage. And it's a component of the festival that I fall in love with every year. What are some of your memorable stage walk ons? The
4: rapper. The rapper what was her name? Sunita. Oh, Sunita. Sunita. Oh my yes, goodness. That was yeah. the Amazing. Afghani rapper. Yes. Yes. yes,
6: I still yes. follow her on Facebook. Oh,
0: she is she was delightful. Mm-hmm.
5: Yeah. Loved the kids it.
6: from Rich Hill,
5: um, the, Oh, that yes, one when they that one was... it was so such an emotional film and then when they came, especially the young man, I can't mm-hmm. think of his name now, that really had an impact on um, me. He and his father mm-hmm. both being there. That was a right. good one for me.
0: That was moving. Mm-hmm. I studied a standout moment of walkouts on the
6: stage. Well, it it wasn't so much a walkout, but one of the first years, I think it was two thousand six or two thousand seven. I was at one of the parties that was the Rise Up Party that used to be at Uprise, and um, it was early on, so there weren't many people there. There's there this elderly gentleman sitting there, so I went up and kind of struck up a conversation, and turns out he was the subject of a film that was there that year and uh, called The Last Supper. And his job was, he was in Texas, his job was to prepare the final supper for death row inmates. Wow. And then we just had an amazing talk about his life and his work. I hadn't seen the film, you know, but I, you know, I'd ask him questions like, what was the most common meal that you had to serve? And was there ever anything that you couldn't get for somebody and... Wow, it yeah, was really it wow. was really fascinating. So the, the thing about this festival is you run into people, like you, do. you run into yeah. directors yeah. at the coffee shop, I was you say run into Dakota
5: you know, right. on the you, street,
6: you, you run into the subjects just walking down the street. It's it's amazing that the the people that you get to just run into during right. the festival. I remember we saw Gasland one year by Josh Fox, which was
0: about fracking. And it was really early on in the whole fracking debate. And And he had kind of bust this story wide open. And it was an amazing movie. And then we went the same year as Wasteland, which was set on the Brazilian dumps. And you had right. the people and the children picking through all of the trash. And, and that was their living. And as I sat down to watch this that film, which I cried at the end of that film, I look around me and there is Josh Fox, the director of Gasla, and sitting right next to us. And so that was amazing. We got to talk to him as before the film started uh, in a conversation that I would never, ever have been able to have. So that, again, is another of those beautiful things at True False. It's who you meet mm-hmm. and the conversations you have just with other
6: Colombians and people that come to the city, Mm -hmm. and they come from all over the world. Right, and we've had so many documentary films here for so many years that we've got a really informed audience, and and we can ask some really deep questions and and probing questions, and, and we can talk intelligently with the directors or with the subjects about their about their films, and I think they appreciate that. You know, they always say, this is the most amazing festival.
0: We go to so many festivals, and this beats all other festivals. And I always think, do you say that to every festival? I mean- <laughs>
4: <laughs> no, we're special. That's true. Well, and, you know, after my son came back from Sundance, he just said, wow, well, you just have to drive around everywhere. He, You know, you don't appreciate that the footprint of true-false is deliberately pedestrian. Right. Mm-hmm. It's deliberately highlighting downtown columbia missouri so very exciting the whole it's well curated and well crafted and Mm -hmm. so community oriented Mm -hmm.
0: now do you have a guiding philosophy about what films to choose are there certain things that you won't see
6: esther hmm well like i said i i a lot of times, and we, we we're going to maybe talk about this a little bit before, but the, the secret screenings that we that used to always come, I sometimes didn't go to those because I figured that I would they would come back to Columbia somehow, like come back to Ragtag. And so I figured those are probably going to be big name films anyway. I like to go to maybe sometimes the smaller ones that I'm not going to get a chance to see again. Right. They're not going to come back. Like this tightrope that's coming back that's coming back this year, but I saw it in twenty ten. It's like, Okay, that's great. Now it's now it's it's made.
0: So. Yeah. So, the secret screenings, just while we're talking about that, um, as long as I can remember, I don't know if it was there in year one, but there have been these secret films, secret screenings, and they're films that either aren't fully finished or they're scheduled to premiere at another festival. So, they're pretty much under wraps still when they come to True False. And the big thing is, you know, you can't, what happens at a secret screening stays at a secret screening. You can't go on social media and, and say what you've seen. And this year, there aren't any. And I talked to David Wilson about that, and he explained that it's mostly because the films that were secret screening options this year didn't really appeal to the screening committee, so there aren't any. So will will you miss them? And what have been some of the secret screenings that you have, that have that you've seen and have really loved?
4: I miss the idea of them. I don't know that I really miss them, but I love the. It's just another layer of wonder mm-hmm. and marvel. Surprise, yeah, and and. My least favorite film was a secret screening. So I wasn't always pleased with secret screenings, but... It's a bit of a crap shoot. It is. Mm-hmm. Yes, it is. I, and I can't... There's not one that comes to mind that I just loved. But the one that I hated is stuck in my mind with Secret Screenings.
0: I did see one a couple of years ago that, that was recommended. to So maybe you had seen it and told us to go and see it. And so we hadn't got it on the list. And it was called A River Below. It was about a Brazilian environmentalist and TV star mm-hmm. that was doing a documentary on saving the pink river dolphins. And so you're hearing about the pink river dolphins plight and you're seeing these Amazonian um, um, tribes and people that are trying to care for them or not, or that are killing them. And so you think you have this story down. And then there's this huge twist halfway through that you don't see coming. And of course, that's what makes a great documentary, those twists in the middle.
4: Was Arts and Crafts a secret screen? It was. That that was my favorite.
0: Yeah. And that was about an art Mm -hmm. forger. Yes. Who is quietly forging Mm -hmm. all these masterworks in his mother's house. Right. And then he'd give them to museums. He wouldn't sell them. He would just uh, donate them. Dressed as a priest, or he'd say, "Oh, my aunt asked me to give this to you," and and of course, then he got found out eventually. But yeah, arts and crafts mm-hmm. was, that was great. Excellent.
6: Mm-hmm. That was a good.
0: Latest, any secret screenings from you that you cared for or did not care for? Was your least favorite film a the one that,
5: screening? That we, the film that cannot be named because of <laughs> its title um, was "Secret Screening Screening Green." Yes, and um, that might have put me off of secret screenings after after that year because
4: mm-hmm. I was I was. And like, Esther has astutely noted that that was uh, <laughs> 2013 2013. Was that?
5: 2013 okay so if you want to know the, the the film that cannot be named you can look
0: up <laughs> mm-hmm. That's all it, right. it could be translated as um making love for forest i there suppose well there wasn't much love in it really but right. anyway
4: <laughs> for money for forests. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yes there you go so that was um that was an interesting film have there been any films that you have walked
6: out of uh, maybe that one. I wanted to walk out of one last year, which happened to be a secret screening. It was called Secret Screening Zephyr. Okay. And it was so painful. But I was with my daughter, my teenage daughter, and that was the one film that we'd picked to go to together. And she seemed to be enjoying it. And so I didn't uh, walk out, but it was, it, it was very painful. It was one man's philosophy of nature and... Being a scientist, first of all, his philosophy was not had did have no basis in science whatsoever, and it was just painful, painful to listen to about trees talking to him and that sort of thing.
4: So, but, uh, but your daughter enjoyed it;
6: she seemed to like it. Okay.
4: <laughs> did there you was- have conversation afterward?
6: I did. I, I well, actually, I didn't stay for the Q and A. I said mm, I gotta go. I mean, with your daughter. Yeah. I no. I did. I said, did you did you stay for the Q and A? She said, yeah. And I said, well, did you like it? And she said, yeah. I, I seemed to like it. She thought it was interesting.
0: I do remember one year being stuck in the middle of a row at Big Ragtag at a, I think it was an East European film about a village. I can, really can't remember. I've blocked it from my memory. But I was I was literally groaning out loud because I, I was stuck. I really couldn't get out without disturbing everybody. So I just sat in my seat and made groaning oh,
5: <laughs> sounds. Meditate yourself. Move yourself from that.
0: <laughs> I did look out of rat film that was here a couple of years ago. It was late and I was tired. But I was, um, we were emailing beforehand and I had said, why does it why is why are you so viscerally angry and disappointed when you choose a true false film and and you don't like it and so esther replied and just said a bad true false documentary has a visceral agony to it because there are simultaneously seven other really good documentaries showing within a mile of you and you are not seeing them because you're seeing this number two you stood in the queue for an hour in the cold for that ticket number three you are so tired and hungry and hungover that your nerve endings are raw <laughs> <None> <laughs> four six of your best friends have raved about it and five all of the above <laughs> that's why it hurts to like make a bad choice it's so True True. <laughs> because i've sat through lots of bad fiction films but you know you're just going to go home and think oh, well it wasn't good but yeah there's something painful
6: and you know one of the ones that everybody loved which was um searching for sugar man oh yeah yeah everybody remember was that was 2012 and it was the closing night and I was so tired and, and being up late that I just slept through the whole film. <laughs> <laughs> I have yet yeah,
0: slept through some of the late ones. Yeah, <laughs> it happens. Okay. I've I, I decided I'm not going to do late films this year. I'd just rather
4: you've got a party.
0: Yeah, I, I haven't got any energy to party. Parties are for the young people and people like you, Em, that just. I always think I'm going
4: to party, <laughs> and then I never do. I always go home. It's like, oh gosh. It's well, time to the go. parties are another over the top aesthetic thing I want to go and see what did they do to transform the space mm-hmm. because everything is so carefully considered mm-hmm. and flamboyantly executed I mean mm-hmm. it just gets more amazing so I want to visually be at the party and maybe have you know one drink or one dance <laughs> well, or whatever. I'm, I'm but yeah mostly mostly it's um I have to go see it but then I have to go to sleep
0: I'm impressed that you make it, I and of course, do. there's lots of mm-hmm. art to see too. And Esther, you've been working on a huge art project mm-hmm. that's going to be in front of the Missouri Theatre. Right. Tell us quickly about okay, that. very
6: quickly. It's Tracy Griever Rice's uh, art installation this year, and uh, Tracy, her projects are always involve uh, fiber of some kind. And this year, we're, are the fiber that is featured is uh, repurposed uh, burlap bags from Fretboard Coffee for coffee beans, and they're three gigantic goddesses that are dressed in in burlap that's been woven or bleached or and, or braided.
3: And these are like Phenomenal. twelve foot
6: high. The tallest one is I think about twelve feet high. And there will be two Thursday night for the Jubilee, but because there's a tent, there's not room for the third one. So beginning Friday there'll be three and they'll be on ninth street where the ninth street that's closed off in front of the Missouri Theater.
0: Fantastic. Well, I think that is us out of time. We could go on for uh, forever, but thank you so much to Becky Gibbs, Anne Mare and Esther Stroh. Thank you, ladies. You can find out more about the True False Film Fest at truefalse.org, where you can also find detailed descriptions of all the 44 films that are being shown at this year's fest, along with information about all the accompanying events, music, art, parties and hoopla that will be in town from Thursday the 28th of February through Sunday the 3rd of March. You are listening to Speaking of the arts and before we hand the airwaves over to terry gross and fresh air we'll take a whistle stop tour of some of the arts events that are going to be vying for your attention over the next seven days And it is a hugely busy weekend for theatre and the only way to do it all was really to have started two days ago. At the University of Missouri's Rheinsberger Theatre you can see the Every 28 Hours plays, a national performance project that takes its name from the shared and contested statistic that every 28 hours a black person is killed in the US by police or vigilante. The performance starts at 7.30 tonight and tomorrow, plus there is a 2pm matinee on Sunday and a talkback session after each performance. Tickets for that show are $16. This is the opening weekend for Columbia Entertainment Company's production of the romantic comedy Almost Maine. The performance starts at 7.30 tonight and tomorrow, plus you have a Sunday matinee option. And that show continues next weekend, and tickets are $14. At Stevens College, you heard them earlier on the show, there is a production of the classic drama Machinal, written in 1928 by Sophie Treadwell, and loosely based on the real-life case of convicted and executed husband-murderer Ruth Snyder. Machinal is at the warehouse Theater tonight and tomorrow at 7.30 with a 2pm matinee on Sunday and tickets are $8. And at William Woods University in Fulton there is a production of Eurydice on this weekend only. See it tonight and tomorrow at 7.30 or on Sunday at 2 and tickets are $11. At Talking Horse Theatre tonight and tomorrow you can experience Strange New Worlds an evening of performance and art with Audra Sergal, Meg Phillips-Crespi L. Lou Davies, Robin Anderson and Friends. Their show starts at 7.30 both nights and tickets are $15. At Rose Music Hall tonight, there is a Johnny Cash bash on, which would have been his 86th birthday to, uh, today, paying homage to the Man in Black, the Harms Family Band, the Widowmakers, the Barroom Billies, and Tim Carey. And that show starts at 8. Saturday morning at the Boone History and Culture Centre, the Meet the Author series, postponed from last Saturday, takes place and it has Jennifer Maritza talking about her debut collection of prose and poetry called Scar On, Scar Off, a young woman's experiences as an actress, Afro-Latina in Contemporary Society. Jennifer's talk is free and open to all and starts at 10.30 tomorrow morning. It's a big night at the Blue Note on Saturday with the Kay Brothers back in town and playing with the Mighty Pines, plus the Bernie sisters make an appearance. General admission is $6 and the evening gets underway at 7.30. And at Rose Music Hall, the previously postponed Missouri Bass Fest is on the stage with music from Section 8, Pollux, Lucid, Sound Effects and OC. That show starts at 9. At Ophelia Flowers, Violet and the Undercurrents play Play an unplugged concert. Admission is ten dollars and their concert starts at eight thirty. On Sunday evening, there is a Mizzou new music concert at the Whitmore Recital Hall on campus, featuring works by three visiting composers, plus two world premieres by Mizzou students. This is a free concert and it starts at 7.30. On Tuesday evening, the University Concert Series presents the Shanghai Opera Symphony Orchestra at Jesse Hall. Tickets for that show start at $18 and the evening gets underway at 7. Also on Uh, Tuesday evening at 7pm, the Jeff Hamilton Trio play at the Whitmore Recital Hall as part of the We Always Swing Jazz season. This concert is the postponed concert from November the 29th, and tickets are almost sold out, so do check with the jazz series before heading out to that show. Wednesday evening at the Blue Note, you can catch rock band Seven Dust in concert with Tremonti, Cane Hill, Lullwater and Kira. The evening starts early at 6 and tickets are 25 in advance or 30 on the door. And that same evening Wednesday at Café Berlin, there is an evening with The Campfire Story Collective, featuring a host of local storytellers. The show starts at 8. and there is a suggested donation of $5. And at Skylark Bookshop, the Unbound Book Club will be discussing Brown Girl Dreaming by children's laureate Jacqueline Woodson. The book club will meet from 6 till 7.30 next Wednesday. And finally, next Thursday, it is the start of the True False Film Fest with a chance to get some movies checked off your list before the official opening of the fest on Friday. The True False box office is open from Wednesday onwards next week and is located at the Sega Browdus Gallery on Walnut Street. You can check out the film schedule online at truefalse.org. You have been listening to Speaking of the Arts on 89.5 FM, KOPN Columbia, with me, Dynamoxen, and my good friend and sound engineer, Mike Hagan. We'll be back next week with more news, views, and interviews on the arts in Mid Missouri. Stay arty, Columbia. <laughs>